Welcome to the Wildscast. Today, Rabbi Wilds speaks with Allison Josephs. She runs Jew in the City. Backwards, extreme, judgmental, sexist. These are the words that too often come to mind when people think of Orthodox Jews and Judaism. This is the battle Jew in the City has been fighting since 2007. We hope you enjoy the conversation. It is an honor and a pleasure to be able to host uh, Allison Josephs, who is a an old friend and the founder uh, and director of Jew in the City, which you're going to hear about uh, this afternoon. Uh, Jew in the City attempts to reverse negative associations about religious Jews uh, by highlighting an approach which is really based on kindness, tolerance, and critical thinking, and also tries to make Orthodox Judaism more well-known, better well-known, I should say, uh, and more accessible. Um, Allison's the founder and director of another program, which is under the auspices of Jew in the City, called Project Makom, which is an amazing uh, organization in its own right. And that, that organization helps former and questioning Haredi, ultra-Orthodox Jews, find their place in the Orthodox community. Uh, Allison has been involved in Jewish outreach for like a long time, 20 years, uh, working with partners in Torah, Sinai Retreats, NCSY, uh, and she is a mentor of the great, amazing actress Mayim Bialik from uh, uh, Big Bang Theory, big, big fan. Uh, Allison was named one of National Jewish Outreach Program's top 10 Jewish influencers, and she was one of the Jewish Week's 36 under 36, and she's all over. She's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, on CNN. She's been written about. She's appeared on CBS, ABC, Fox 5. Her articles are in the Washington Post, the Forward. And she's really an awesome and sought out, uh, sought after lecturer. We hosted Allison uh, a number of years ago at MGE. She came for a whole Shabbat and spoke at one of our Shabbat dinners. She got her bachelor's from Columbia uh, in philosophy and lives with her husband and children in the holy city of Teaneck. Is that correct? You're in Teaneck, aren't you? Uh, near Teaneck. <laughs> near Teaneck, not technically Teaneck. But Allison, thank you so, so much for being with us. Uh, today. It's really a great honor to have you. Thank you. And, and Kolika, vote for all the amazing work you're doing. Thank you so much. And uh, same to you. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So let's let's get into it. Tell us a little about your background. Where did you go up? Um, and, you know, because you're, I guess, a promoter of observant Judaism, tell us a little about that aspect of your background. Did you grow up with this? You raised religious, not? We're curious. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey, um, right out, I mean, not right outside of Manhattan, but about 40 minutes away in sort of the Livingston, Morristown area. Um, I really was raised with a lot of negative feelings around the religious Jewish community. And I think the work that I do now is because the sort of initial feelings were so bad. Um, it's almost like a tikkun now to try to make up for my negative associations, but we were raised to be very proud Jews um, and, you know, did the high holidays and, you know, Passover seders um, and had a very strong feeling that we had to marry Jewish because we had to continue being Jewish, but it was never really explained like why, like what exactly is our impact on the world or why exactly does it matter that the Jewish people continue? What is that meaning behind Am Yisrael Chai? That part was never actually given over. My mother would try to sort of instilled Jewish pride in us by telling us how many doctors, lawyers, and Nobel laureates were Jewish. She didn't really have Torah wisdom to draw upon, so that was the most that um, I think she could look to. And we have a program now called the Orthodox Jewish All-Star Awards, where we 
highlight Orthodox Jews who have done exceptional things in their careers. And someone pointed out to me that it could be sort of my um, my roots of my mother sort of instilling Jewish pride by seeing Jews doing cool things that maybe led to our to you know my launching this program around Orthodox Jews doing cool things. Um, but you know, I had a pretty typical, you know, sort of upper middle class secular Jewish life. You know, the goal was to get into an Ivy League school, you know, marry a nice Jewish boy, have two to three kids and just, you know, kind of repeat what my parents did. Um, and and all those things. Yeah, exactly. I did all those things. Married a nice Jewish boy. got Right, the kids, exactly. No. right exactly. So things took um, sort of an unexpected turn when I was eight years old and um, a father in my school went crazy and killed both of his kids and himself. Um, so that sort of like burst this bubble of sort of the path that was supposed to continue a certain way um, and introduced trauma into my life. So suddenly I was at a triple funeral. And, you know, even though I wasn't close to this girl that was killed, um, it really introduced the idea of like mortality into my very young and, you know, um, impressionable mind. And I started to think about my own end and, you know, what happens when I leave this world, what I bring with me, what any of it even adds up to. And, and when you're eight years old, you know, you think your parents know everything at that point. And so I turned to them a few days after the funeral very innocently and asked, why are we here? Um, and they had no idea what I was talking about when I meant like, you know, the reason, you know, <laughs> what does it all boil down to? Um, my parents just stared back at me um, and I was terribly confused. I couldn't understand why they would have three children and not know what they're doing here in the first place. Like, like you already were stuck existing before I was here, but why did you get me into this mess if you didn't have a plan for yourself? Um, and I started going around asking sort of the smartest people in my world, teachers, oh, relatives. How old were you? I'm sorry to jump in. How old? Yeah, were so you? this started. It started at eight. Um, and this, so you, uh, mom and dad, you know, you decided to bring me into existence. Like, why? Right. I mean, exactly. Um, and the truth is that my kids also, my kids also at a young age had these like big deep questions, and I think there are just certain personalities that are more drawn towards these deep questions. Um, but the lack of them being able to answer, and the lack of basically everyone in my world, the answer that I got was. Don't think about it. Nobody knows. Just stop thinking about it. And first of all, that doesn't actually work because kind of like once you open up that Pandora's box, you can't put it back inside. Um, and I attempted to stay busy with all the wonderful things that my life contained, you know, be it um, schoolwork and extracurriculars and, you know, vacations and hanging out with friends. I had all those things that make life life nice and enjoyable. I just knew that. Um, Nothing was adding up to anything and that there was sort of a clock. There was a stopwatch running out on the time that I had left on this planet. Um, and it seemed like, well, my life must have some purpose or some existence. And like the sad thing, the most tragic thing is that um, my parents sent me to Hebrew school. My parents sent me to Hebrew high because it wasn't a place to learn uh, about Judaism. It was a place to meet a nice Jewish boy to eat bacon cheeseburgers with one day. Um, but I had no sense that there was any wisdom to draw upon in my own heritage um, and it's, it's such a shame because we're such an educated people. Um, and when it comes to our own heritage, um, we know so little, you know, everyone has multiple majors these days, multiple graduate degrees. Um, I did not know the word for Jew in Hebrew until I made a commitment to become more observant. I would argue that, you know, the majority of Jews could name Jesus's mother, but not Moses's mother. So as, you know, a super educated people, um, we really do have, you know, a lot of ignorance about our own heritage. But back to the Hebrew high part, um, my parents had to speak really on that, you know, that yeah. uh, there are more Jews that 
um, can read and speak French in America wow. than in Hebrew, just wow. so you know, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, so my parents sent us to Hebrew High to meet the nice Jewish boy. What ended up happening was that um, there was an Orthodox teacher at this school, um, and I was not expecting to have anything to learn from, you know, one of those crazy Orthodox Jews. But um, he actually had a very, you know, deep class where we were studying um, Perkei Avot, which I didn't really care so much about. But he had this other book called the Tao Te Ching, which was, you know, Asian wisdom, Chinese wisdom. And I figured that is probably where I will find deep wisdom. So I uh, came for the Chinese, but then I ended up staying for the Jewish. He sort of enticed us by, and, and there was, you know, Tao Te Ching is a beautiful book and it had a lot of wisdom in it, but it was really like an opening to be able to, um, be interested to hear like what my own leaders and, and, you know, um, the sages of, of my tradition had to say. Um, and so that really um, opened me up to Jewish learning. I spent my first Shabbos um, at this teacher's house. This is, um, high school where, where you, this is like high school? This is like junior year of high school. Um, mm. And um, so that was sort of like the opening. And just to give you like a little more background on the negativity I had around Orthodox Jews, um, my father treated... Um, Hasidim when he was doing his residency um, at Mount Sinai. And so some of my earliest memories were my father coming home and saying they're dirty, they're smelly, they're ignorant, they can't speak English. And I didn't have sort of the perspective to be able to separate out um, my father's bias or a few bad experiences that my father had that wasn't representative of the entire Hasidic population, the entire Orthodox population. I, my father painted with a broad brush um, and we really sort of looked at the religious population as the other. Um, and I, in turn, internalized that information. And I also then based my information on the community on every negative headline. Um, and it's really almost always the negative stuff that gets picked up, all the acts of kindness, all the positivity that's just, you know, done behind closed doors and so quietly. Um, and then, can, I, can I just stop you there? Because yeah, it's, sure. it's an interesting paradox because what you're describing is that what seems to have drawn you to, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it classical Judaism or more Jewish depth and orthodoxy, ultimately, um, is the lack of knowledge, a lack of wisdom. And then when your dad comes home and, you know, and I've heard this from a lot of your father's not unique, you know, um, you know, that, 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 uh, you know, orthodox Jews have a, a tendency to be seen as primitive, as less sophisticated. But but what's the, what's what's ironic to hear is that what what drew you, um, let's say, away from whatever other denomination. I don't know if you had an official denomination with which you affiliated, but but with the lack of knowledge, you want more substance, you want more depth, you want some wisdom, and now you're going to orthodoxy, and yet so many people think of orthodox Jews as lacking in that very wisdom, lacking in that sophistication. They're not progressive. They're primitive. They're old school. I mean, how, how do we reconcile that, you know? Uh, we found an organization that deals with that problem exactly. We found an organization which uses the word orthodox. I set you up. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, I worked in Jewish outreach for years, and the word orthodox is a dirty word, and it's a scary word, and it's a loaded word. And I can tell you, I know that we have people that, you know, if someone, a donor, a board member starts talking about their involvement with us, the minute they are orthodox, boom, they end the conversation. They don't want to talk about it anymore. So I know that um, we stir a little, you know, trouble up by using that word, you know, sort of out there. At the same time, orthodox only gets used about us. 
It only gets used about us in the media for all the crimes we commit, for all the bad things that we do. You know, and I actually did, I need to publish this op-ed, but I did an analysis. We kept track of articles for, uh, it's not, not going to get published in a mainstream uh, outlet because they don't actually want to admit to their bias, but we tracked stories for many years of Orthodox Jews saving people on a bridge or doing different types of acts of kindness. And either they're listed as Jews or just human beings. When they molest, when they defraud, when they do all sorts of creepy things, then they're Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox. The religion is completely relevant in those situations. When it comes to, you know, being a, an exceptionally good person, either it's just plain Jewish or, the you know, um, the religion is left out completely. So essentially what we have is... Why, why do you think that is, Alice? I mean, first of all, I, I, I unfortunately agree with you. Um, and I didn't realize it was that consistent, which is interesting, and you should definitely publish it. Um, why do you think that is? Why do you think... And is that is that primarily outside of the Jewish world? Is that also within um, the, the Jewish, Jewish world? world? It's because I don't want to sound like an anti-Semite and say that there's a lot of Jews in media. Um, but without sounding like an anti-Semite, there's a lot of Jews in media. And I would say as a person who was a proud, and again, I don't think it's fair to call people like this self-hating Jews because I think it's lack of information and I think it's really due to ignorance. Um, there is a, a misunderstanding uh, essentially, this is sort of how I see it. And the work that we do in Project Makom with the disenfranchised um, sort of ultra-Orthodox Haredi crowd, there's a whole bunch of ultra-Orthodox Haredi Hasidic Jews that we never hear about. They're living their lives tucked away somewhere. They're not on media, social media. They're doing acts of kindness. They have beautiful simchas. They, we don't know about them and they don't know about us because they just live these happy lives and we're not connected. Those stories we don't hear about. Every horror story, every story of abuse and dysfunction, every story of an extreme school or rabbi or teacher, not everyone, obviously, there's many that are not told, but um, the ones that make it to the news are the worst. And what essentially happens is that the worst parts of the community come to the forefront. Um, the media amplifies those negative stories to the point that um, the world now believes, including fellow Jews, that this is a normative orthodoxy, this is normative orthodox Jews, and now our perception of like what reality is is totally skewed. So the problem that we have is that um, these stories are real. The stories of dysfunction and abuse are actually happening, um, and there are people that are weaponizing Torah and Judaism and doing awful things with them, control, manipulation, abuse. Those things are real, so we can't deny, we can't say it's anti-Semitism or, you know, they're making, you know, outright lies. There are actual real things that are happening. But the issue is that when the stories are overreported, we are a small number of people. And yet, like, the number of stories about our community, and especially the negative ones, are overreported compared to our number. And then what you end up happening is that you have, you know, people that only see us through the bad. So I would say members of the media, and I've been told explicitly by members of the media, they have shown their bias to me quite explicitly. Is, I've that, been, it, is that is that because, I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but yeah. I just, I, is that because it just sells better? And so in, that's in terms of, I mean, it makes sense why the media, the media is not going to do a story on the beautiful chesed that happens in Borough Park, the beautiful acts of kindness, which I'm aware of, because it's not going to sell as much as some scandal in Borough Park. So I get the media. I get the media. What I'm asking is, why why our own people, why our own Jewish brothers and sisters um, are highlighting or or super uber focused on the negative and or, or are they just unaware? Is it ignorance? 
Um, is it some sort of justification? Well, I'm not living that way. You know, sometimes it's easier for a non-Jew to accept a religious Jew than it is yeah. a Jew who's observant because it's like implying, well, you're holier than thou or you're living in a way I should be living, but I'm not. And I've chosen not to. And, and that, and, you know, I've seen this with a lot of my students who have become observant over the years. They have such a harder and more difficult time with their siblings or their parents sure. with their non-Jewish colleagues at work. Yeah. Because a non-Jewish at work can say, oh, that's your religion. I'm Christian. You're Jewish. It's, it doesn't impinge upon me. But your parents, your brother, your cousin, I mean, is that it? I think that um, there's multiple factors going on. Um, one part of it is certainly for some people, there may be a guilt factor of, you know, if you're living this type of Judaism, I'm not, does this speak negatively to me? I've heard Jews before sort of call themselves, I'm a bad Jew. Um, it's sort of a certain like shamefulness or embarrassment. So even if the observant Jew is not putting that information or those sort of um, projecting that onto them, they're sort of projecting it onto themselves. They're feeling it from their own, maybe guilt or shame. Then there's point number two, where there actually are judgmental Orthodox Jews and people are reacting to feeling judged. Um, and that's a point where, you know, people in the community, we need to, you know, sort of look to ourselves and say, are we putting out any messaging or, you know, feelings that might make someone feel less than sometimes it's their thing. Sometimes we're adding to it. Um, and then I would say another piece is just plain misinformation. You know, mm -hmm. one of the things that the, the reason, one of the reasons that I started you in the city was that um, I saw that when someone got to an outreach program, when they had their first Shabbos meal or went to a class and met normal, cool religious Jews there could be this seismic shift in the way they saw everything. And suddenly Orthodox Jews weren't the rock throwers and, you know, the people that chained women, you know, to a stove somewhere as their perception said they were. Um, they could just be normal, nice, relatable people. And it seemed yeah, like... I honestly love that. I just want to say, give you a little commercial. That's what I really love about what you're doing. Because, you know, uh, Jill, my wife, who you know very well, is sitting right here I listening to <laughs> And she... Uh, you know, sometimes when we'll get like, not a Mayan Bialik, we'll get like, a, I don't know, a B-level. Mayan is probably an A-level, you know. Yeah. We'll get like a B-level, someone who's either very attractive, very successful, you know, who's or well-known in some way, and they're orthodox, they're observant. So we're parading them around a little because that just dispels myths and misperceptions. And that's really actually important. I mean, it's a little sad that we have to do it because the Joju was just living their pious religious life is just as holy, maybe holier than the uh, cool, you know, uh, successful entrepreneur who's making tons of money on Wall Street and looks, you know, looks great in a suit, but um, or dress, whatever you want to say. So I, I, I thought that resonates with me. And that's a big thing that happens in all outreach programs. Everybody's looking for those individuals because it gives, you know, it gives religious Judaism a better name. I mean, it's sad. You know, well, look, so I, I would say um, a couple things. Number one, what we do now is instead of having to get someone through a door to go to a program to have to have that experience, we let people experience these things through social media. So it's more of a, a sort of a cost effective way to produce that information, to publicize that information out to the world. Number one, number two, let's just acknowledge that people are shallow. We live in a shallow world. Um, I think that you can use shallowness as a vehicle to get to depth. If it's shallowness for the sake of shallowness, um, I want no part of that. If it's shallowness to order to get people's attention so that you can now speak to, you know, their soul, um, then I think that that, you know, makes sense. Uh -huh. So 
Great. I do think, you know, as part of our mission statement, it's about making Orthodox Judaism engaging. We do need to be able to show people that you can take beautiful vacations that are kosher. You can wear beautiful, modest clothes. You can have exciting careers and do it within Shabbos. For me, as I started to conceive of a more observant life for myself, I didn't want to box myself into a culture that seemed like super foreign or seemed super restricted. Obviously, I can't do everything. There are limitations within Jewish law of what I can and can't do, but there's so much that I can do. And I would say that's another thing that um, I think people really misunderstand where the limitations of Jewish law are and how you can find ways to make room for yourself, your interests, your passions um, within its Torah framework. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that information. Yeah. Give us an example of that. Um, you know, let, let, yeah, if you can drill down a little. Of, of how you can, you're saying for, in terms of, I mean, look, for the all-stars, um, the number of companies that, you know, we've seen, um, or, you know, major organizations and companies, whether it's, uh, you know, we have someone high up at Madison Square Garden, uh, someone high up in Ford Motor Company, Treasurer Ford, General Counsel Madison Square Garden, um, Emmy-winning writers and producers. I mean, uh, People at HBO, like, you know, the all-stars that we featured um, have spoken in our interviews that we've done with them about how the companies and organizations they work with bend over backwards to accommodate them for Shabbos and holidays. So that's sort of like one piece, you know, I think for a lot of people, knowing that um, there's room within their career to, you know, add in Shabbos or observe holidays, you know, that's an important piece. Um, and I, we, I guess Mariam, I guess Mayim Bialik is, you know, a super example of that as well. So, so Mayim, um, the challenge with Mayim is that there has not been until Mayim um, an actress, a Shomer Shabbos actress in Hollywood. Um, she fortunately was on a show that did not tape on Shabbos when it came Just for the, to... Listening, no, a Shomer Shabbos means Sabbath observant. Just Sabbath for observant. For the Big Bang Theory, there were episodes that taped on holidays, and this was something that we had to discuss, how she was in a position where she did not feel like she could just quit her, her job and tell them, sorry, you know, Big Bang Theory, I'm, uh, it's, you know, me and uh, Sukkot all the way. Um, and I think it's important as someone is growing in observance to be realistic about kind of where they are and what they can handle. So we spoke about ways how does she minimize her, you know, sort of desecration of the holiday, you know, if there are days she has to come in during the holiday. So we spoke about, you know, getting driven to work by a non-Jewish driver, having him open and shut the doors, like really trying to minimize um, ways to, to break the holiday for days that she had to come in and read lines. She's now on a new show called Call Me Cat, which she is the star of um, and uh, like a senior co-producer with Jim Parsons. And so now this is her first time where she's not just the actress, but she's also in the, you know, the boss's chair. Um, and we spoke about the fact that, you know, she had to tell her team. So for the month of September, pretty much everything shuts down. Like every other week, you won't be hearing from me. And I think um, some people were pretty shocked that she was like, it's Shemini Atzeris tomorrow, you know. But this, this is actually what she's doing right now for this show, Call Me Cat, that I think will premiere on Fox maybe next week. Um, this is not the first time that I believe she will actually be able to control her schedule, which is, it's pretty exciting and pretty historic. But um, there was Stephen Hill on Law & Order. He was yeah. actually, a, yeah, a Shomer Shabbos actor. Uh, but I think it sort of came later in his career and he was already pretty established. But um, yeah, Hollywood is definitely a tough 
place, uh, you know, to do this sort of thing. A lot of writers. Um, we we both know a lot of writers. Yeah, I've had a lot of people come through MJE who are in the writing industry. It's a little easier to navigate becoming Sabbath observant. Sure. But um, you know, I'll just tell you. Years ago, do you remember the movie Uspizin? Sure. Remember, remember that movie? So yeah, yeah. the lead, the lead actor and actress in the movie were a Hasidic couple. Yeah. Both, by the way, were not raised uh, in the Orthodox world. They came very Orthodox. And we had the opportunity to hear from them. Um, uh, I remember they spoke, the, the Jewish Center hosted them, and MGE came. And uh, I remember they told everyone that they would not, they stipulated when the movie came out, they would not let Israeli cinemas show the film on Friday nights, hmm. which obviously would cut into their profits. And somebody from the audience asked, you know, is um, d- did you think that that was going to, that your religious observance was starting to impinge on your success? And she did all the talking, <laughs> uh, Michal, and she stepped forward. I'll never forget this. She said, um, it all depends on how you define success. Yes, not allowing the cinemas to show, uh, the movie theaters to show our movie Friday nights definitely impinged on our financial success, but not on our life success. And I yeah. think that's really one of the, I think, um, you know, messages that we I've been trying at MG and I know you've been, you know, is that how do we define success in life? Is it only in material terms? Because Correct. if it is, then you do whatever you can to make the extra buck and to become more and more famous. We just had a Senator Lieberman on um, and he was discussing this, too, about, you know, it's different than Mayim. But here's a Shomer Shabbat, a Torah observant Jew who's got a vote on Shabbos. Mm-hmm. He walks. And the Secret Service had to follow him, you know, after he was uh, ch- uh, chosen by uh, by Al Gore to be his running mate. Now he has a Secret Service um, signed to him as he's walking three or four miles to Capitol Hill to vote. So I just think that's such a great message for our listeners and our viewers and our participants at MGE and and, and just any other examples of Jews that are trying to negotiate you know, their lives out there and not just shut it down and say, well, if I'm going to be a Torah observant Jew, I'm going to be a Shomer Shabbat, Sabbath observant. I can't do what I really want to do in life. It's not true. We all know right. that we can, we can work it out. You know, and I just think that's a, such a powerful and important message. Oh, so look, our all-stars and we, we've had six years of all-stars so far. Um, we had uh, the kid, David Mazuz that starred in um, Fox's Gotham. He played Batman. Um, and in our interview, you can check it out. He says that his fam- his favorite subject in school was uh, learning Talmud. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, when he accepted his award at our event, he said, you know, when he makes a list of all the things that he is, like Jewish is always at the top. Uh, look, there's there are definitely people that um, have, have, you know, made this balance. Um, certainly as you get higher up in your field, um, anyone that has remained Sabbath observant is doing so out of great conviction. But I think it's important to note that, um, you know, it's certainly possible. And yeah, I think that the message that we like to give over from the all-stars that we highlight is that it's not their success that actually counts. It's their conviction that really um, makes them all-stars and makes them great because, um, you know, success is a mix of, uh, you know, raw talent, hard work, a little bit of mazel. But having the conviction to say this is who I am and this is who I'm not. We had yeah. last year um, the chief technology officer of OpenTable. Their company was sold to Priceline um, on Shavuos, and so the CEO said to yes, yes, this, you know, you got to be there the IPO. And he said I won't. And he and you know he said the CEO was stunned that he said that. Um, and he didn't show up. It was his holiday. That's how it was. And 
he said when it was all over, even though it was kind of tense beforehand, he came to him and he said, like, I respect you. Like you have, you have your boundaries, you know, who you are and who you're not. And what, yes, he said is that like, he's constantly around billionaires that, you know, kind of still don't have enough. Um, when it's just, when you're only sort of gathering uh, material uh, things, then, um, there's always more that you could, you know, want and you could desire. Um, yeah. Spiritual matters have a different, you know, way. Of you know, being. you know the uh, we just are still reading about Joseph um, in in these parshiot in the Torah portions, and this is really, I think, one of the greatest models. Joseph, I think, is the greatest model for the work you're doing, Allison, because Joseph, even when he was fetched out of jail and he had this opportunity to impress Pharaoh to get out of prison, you know, what does he say? He says, it's not me, it's God. Ultimately, that's going to interpret your dreams. And he mentions God's name three or four times in that one, uh, you know, episode with Paro, who, who, by the way, you know, was being worshipped as a God himself. Mm-hmm. And he never shied away from that. And I always, I always believe that he was supposed to be the model, mm-hmm. you know, that you're proud of who you are and you're successful at what you do. People mm-hmm. are going to respect both. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, this was one of his great, he had so many amazing lines. One of my favorite of his lines, he says that uh, non-Jews respect Jews who respect their Judaism and are a little embarrassed of Jews who are embarrassed of their Judaism. Mm-hmm. And it's not about necessarily wearing our Judaism on our sleeve. We're supposed to be modest about you know, but the idea that we're proud of who we are and that we're going to bring to the workplace and we're going to make, because that's really, you know, we were talking about, you know, what's the relevance? You know, I was asking you, what, why did you turn to this at such a young age yourself, personally? Mm-hmm. That's because you found relevance in it. You found meaning and purpose in your Judaism. And there's so much meaning and purpose and relevance. And for that to be, you know, put aside because, well, my career is more important. Well, what's going to keep your career interesting to you? What's going to mm-hmm. keep your career, you know, um, uh, what's going to keep your values as you continue to negotiate the, the complicated issues that come up in your career? But let me ask you, I'm going to turn the conversation a little. I have two more sticky, a little more, I don't want to say controversial questions. Number one, did your work get harder during the Trump era? Because a lot of you know, Orthodox Jews were very into Trump or are into Trump. He's still the president. Um, and that was like a maybe a, I don't know. Was that more of a turnoff amongst um, non-Orthodox Jews or um, about Orthodox Jews? Um, and was was that it? And I'm just curious about that. Yeah. I mean, we really just try to avoid politics as much as possible, to be honest. That's sort of the, the best that we, we can handle it. Um, it's really it is such a. <laughs> Like once you go there, even when I've tried to, you know, um, write articles trying to show that there are good people that can come from different political persuasions. And because the moment that you sort of take a step this way or that way, you begin to alienate your readers because we have people that have very strong opinions that are coming to our page, both very pro-Trump and very anti-Trump. Um, the best thing that we've really been able to do is to just call, like sort of ask people to, you know, show respect and try to, I, I saw a beautiful um, uh, piece of Torah in the name of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Um, and it was around Sukkot's time, right when there was an election, maybe midterm elections, where he said that um, 
Normally, we think of the, the lulav and the esrov as representing four different types of Jews. So one has both the, you know, the Torah and the good deeds. One has neither. One has one of one. One has one of the other. But he said um, his understanding of the four species is that they have actually all of them. All four species has all of those things, Torah and deeds. Um, but they all have a different way of getting there. And so sort of what I called upon our readers to consider is that pro-life, pro-choice, you know, uh, pro-guns, anti-guns, um, name your issue, name your hot button issue. At the end of the day, don't we all want peace? Don't we all want prosperity? Uh, don't we all want to live in a world where hard work means that you can succeed? Don't we want to live in a world where, you know, somebody that falls in hard times won't get swallowed up? Isn't that the world that we basically all normal same people want to live in? I think the answer is yes. We have different ideas of how we can achieve that world. Um, and and when we start talking about those particulars, people will get very heated. So sort of like, let's not focus on the pathway to get there. Let's just sort of pause for a moment and just consider that your political opponent ultimately, you know, is sort of dreaming of a, you know, a similar type of peaceful and prosperous world than you are. The mechanism to get there will be different, but let's just try to find commonality in our shared humanity. Um, that's really the only way that we can approach this because, again, if we go into the particulars of Trump or no Trump, right. um, we would no, set off. Sort of I think the way you put that is beautiful and what unites us should always be focused on. You know, the problem is we're living in such a, a, a social media PR driven society and what makes news and what gets people's attention, you know, is, is the negativity and the and the polarization but I really appreciate that. And and I will say, I, I've also steered clear. I think I've done yeah. a pretty good job and it's hard because yeah. we have a lot of, uh, I would say we're probably more anti-Trump than we do pro-Trump, but we've got a decent amount of that too yeah. at MGE. And the truth is we, and I, I say we, because I, I, I look at what we do is very similar. You know, we have to be above the politics. We have to be above yeah. the fray because people need to find a Jewish home. And that Jewish home cannot be divisive and it yeah. cannot be a place where it's going to divide. I, I was called uh, in 2016 by my friend um, Jason Greenblatt, who I grew up with, who was Trump's advisor in the least issue, and David Friedman, who was uh, a supporter of MGE, uh, to, if, if I would give the, um, the benediction at the Republican National Convention. And I wasn't able to do it. And I, you know, and I don't regret the decision. I had to turn them down. Flattering to have been asked. But I knew I called just a couple of MGEers just randomly. And they, they were like, it, it's it's going to be weird. It's going to yeah. feel alienating for me because this and, and it's sad we live in the world. But I think you're doing the right thing. I have another question. Um, just in terms of COVID, you know, please, God. We're we're seeing a little light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, actually spoke with a friend in Israel there. It's really starting to circulate the, the vaccine. Thank God it's going to take longer here, a much larger country. But are you all embarrassed by some Orthodox Jews, some yeah. Orthodox Jews um, who seem to be flouting all the social distance rules, uh, large events, weddings um, and the like without masks, just just completely yeah. What's your, like, how do you deal with that? Like, yeah. How do you um, look, I, the way that I try to approach every issue is with nuance. What I find is that when I try to approach issues with nuance, I end up getting everybody upset. Um, so yeah, let's uh, dig into that right now. I think, um, 
we have to kind of unpack a few different things like going on. Number one, um, there were actually plenty of Orthodox Jews that did shut down right away. In fact, you know, in Bergen County, the rabbis, you know, shut everything down before the local government even asked them to. Um, and I think saved a ton of lives and I think were sort of the catalyst to lots of other Orthodox communities around the country shutting down early um, and saving lots of lives. So uh, I guess piece number one is that um, there's all these sort of underreported Orthodox Jews doing exceptional and very careful things that nobody knows about them. And I really, I have to tell you, like, I've actually, I sent this to some media contacts um, as they sort of like beat the drum about all the Orthodox Jews doing wrong. Do you know how exceptional our schools are right now, how they're staying open, how they're being careful in social distancing and quarantining people? And I didn't hear back because I think there really is one storyline that they like to tell. So that's the first piece. Um, a lot of Orthodox Jews doing the right thing. Um, number two, um, the Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn that were not behaving so well, that's a hard thing to swallow. At the same time, if you go more to the ultra-Orthodox insular side of things, you have to keep in mind these are people that have maybe like 12 to 15 people in a small apartment. Um, they don't have internet. So when when the rest of us are like, our you know ancestors had to fight in World War II, we just need to you know sit in our sweats and watch Netflix. Well, they're not watching Netflix. They, have no, they don't have Netflix. Um, they don't have Zoom school. They have maybe like one phone line and like 12 kids to go to school on. And while I'm not saying that um, it's any of our fault that they chose this life because they did choose this life to not be connected to the internet, to you know live in this neighborhood, and they did choose to have all these children, um, they certainly didn't realize a pandemic was coming. And so I would ask people to also consider the fact that they were not in the same situation that people that were in better setups had. Again, that doesn't excuse bad behavior, but at the same time, I think the challenges that they had to face were more challenging. Um, there's another piece. Um, I have a good friend who's Hasidic who lives in Borough Park. And this was sort of at the beginning. I was like, what is going on with your neighbors here? Because she was being careful. Her friends are being careful, but she saw a lot of people in her neighborhood that were not. And she said, I can't explain what's going on. But also there's like this Russian neighborhood of non-Jews nearby my house. And they're also completely flouting social distancing rules. And she said, I don't know what the sort of human psych psyche, you know, what, what the psychological explanation is for why people do that. But it's not just Jews. Maybe part of it is um, in certain groups of immigrants that have less trust for government. Um, what I do know is that um, we're certainly more recognizable. And so when you have the spring breakers that are flouting, you know, coronavirus rules and you have the churchgoers and you have this group and that group, you can't pick them out of a crowd later. Um, they just blend into sort of like regular looking Americans later. But when you have Orthodox Jews that are flouting these rules, then later people who may have done nothing wrong, but wear the same garb will now suddenly get lumped into the group of people doing nothing wrong. Um, I also think that to get into another controversial topic, um, I heard a lot of this, the protests over the summer um, got a lot of people in the ultra-Orthodox community sort of riled up that suddenly, you know, protesting and gathering in large crowds was okay for that. But, you know, for the topics that they prioritized, for the things that they wanted to do, you know, that was completely off limits. So um, that was cited to me as sort of, you know, something. Do you think that, um, I mean, that clearly was a, in my opinion, just a really inconsistent kind of thing. The mayor and governor allowed these riots to go. I, I saw them outside of my apartment. I live on West yeah. 86th Street. 
you know, people, no masks, social, no social distancing. Yeah. Orthodox Jews that said, hey, it's not fair if they can congregate for those things. And why can't we go to shul or why can't I go to that big Hasidic wedding with thousands of people? If, uh, you know, you know, uh, and, and if that's the case, you know, um, I mean, that's what I'm struggling with, honestly, on a personal level, because, you know, one, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. And just Correct. because, you know, it was it was unsafe what the city allowed in terms of the uh, the riots, or George Floyd and the like. Um, and, um, and 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 I think it's, it's wrong for Orthodox Jews to have done what they did. But I don't know. You know, what, what's bothering me is that, um, you know, in the modern Orthodox world that I'm operating in, you know, I, I was part of that whole group with the Teaneck. I know about all that. And we shut down yeah. Purim already. Yeah. And um, it just seems like and, and it's not the whole ultra Orthodox community. It's not because I know I have plenty of friends in that world and they're very careful. Um, but it just seems like it just went on and it's still going on. So even if someone has 12 kids and they don't have the Internet, like, OK, by now they know. And then the response I've heard is we already got it. I mean, Correct. so many so Orthodox there's, there's certainly- and what I'll tell you is that there was actually um, talk over the summer that maybe they actually had immunity because there were no new cases over the whole summer. And this that, is something that that actually, di- that actually troubles me more because then it's saying it's not a problem for us. But I said to someone, like, if your house is burning down, even if you don't care if it's burning down, right? Like, the your neighbor's house can catch on fire. And, no, so and, what they're what they're saying is that they couldn't be carriers of a virus if they're already immune, so they can't get it, so they can't give it. But the person that sees them on the street or in the store doesn't know that, and so it's Hashem. Look, I there are also people that have very misdirected understandings of Judaism. For instance, I spoke to a Hasidic lady who told me I know a very special rabbi, and he continued to go to shul every day during the pandemic until he died al Kiddush Hashem from coronavirus. Oh. And I said, you mean he died all suicide? Um, and so something that I've heard, and look, I'm working with a lot of Hasidim and ex-Hasidim now. So there's, I think there's one piece to it that there are a lot of Trump. Did somebody tell her that actually? I mean, where, where did she, where did she get, I don't know where she got, I don't know who told her that. I, I was I, I was in, you know, Jill and I were in Muncie for a couple of months and um, I was praying outside all the, most of the time. And then I went in and I saw a certain minion and I'm like, no masks, and they were davening on behalf of the of the rabbi, of the head rabbi who who contracted COVID. I mean, it was just, in other words, they were in a room with yeah. almost no ventilation. Um, they were probably fifty or sixty men davening, praying, saying to Hillen for a rabbi who got COVID. Which right. is like, what the heck What's is going, going on? on? Right. You know. So I think so, it's also a piece that. Um, but that- but in other words, but it's not it's not. But then I'm at. I was at five or six other Minyam and Muncie, all outside, all social distancing, all masked right. and incredibly. Right. That's very important for people to be aware. It's, as they say in Hebrew, yesh v'yesh, there's both. Correct. Both Correct. Are so the media will not report. The media will not report on the Orthodox or ultra-Orthodox Jews doing the right thing. They only want to report on the Orthodox Jews doing the wrong thing. That's number one. Number two, I do think that the memory of the shtetl is shorter in the minds of the more insular Jews. In that, you know, in my family, my grandfather, I have one grandparent who is uh, was an immigrant. The rest were in America longer. When he was 12 years old in Ukraine, um, some anti-Semitic neighbors lined up his family one day to see how many bullets, how many Jews a bullet could go through. 
And for the rest of his life, he had a distrust of non-Jews. And he raised my mother to believe, like, ultimately, they want to all kill you. They want to all get you. Um, And she didn't believe him, you know, to that same extent because she, you know, was part of America. And we believed that even less because our best friends were not Jewish. But from my grandfather's memory of sort of shtetl life, this was a very serious thing. They'll turn on you at any moment and you can end up dead. I think for people that have, um, I don't want to say assimilated because I think that we're still observant and we're still very, you know, uh, you know, proudly carrying on our Jewish uh, traditions and rituals. But for people that have integrated more into, you know, sort of the larger America, we see yesh v'yesh, there's good people, bad people, but it's not automatically someone's not Jewish and they're looking to line me up and shoot me. For people that never integrated and have remained separate and insular, I think the memory of what happened in the shtetl, even though it hasn't happened here today, um, they never got the chance to be proven wrong that most people here are on their side. So things are going around in that um, they're comparing the inspectors from the New York City government to the Greeks. The Greeks are coming. Quick, hide your, put your masks on. They are literally putting it out in terms of Hanukkah, in terms of, you know, Spanish Inquisition, like in terms of like other sort of moments in Jewish history when the non-Jewish authorities were out to get us, specifically because we were Jewish. Um, That's still very fresh in their memory. And I think that that's also um, sort of part of the the challenge, the, the difficulty of this topic that they simply have less of a trust and more of a fear of outside authorities. So I, I think that's um I think that's a very accurate depiction of of of, of to explain this because um it's just so not Jewish. It's it's very hard to kind of um you know line up Jewish values, Torah texts that are pretty explicit on these types of issues of Bikuach Nefesh and of of life threatening situations and and spreading it in Chil Hashem and all these issues. But I, but I think the issue of Dina de Malchuta Dina, which means the law of the land is the law. Uh, for our listeners, that's a, a Talmudic phrase that's mentioned four times throughout the Talmud, that we're supposed to listen to the laws of the country in which we live. And you see sometimes in the Haredi world where that is not taken as seriously. And I think it's important for people listening to this, because we don't have a lot of Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox listeners. Most of our people are conservative, reform, uh, unaffiliated, or modern Orthodox People, I think, need to understand a little that the more ultra-Orthodox world is still living in a post-Holocaust era. Uh, now, I'm not saying that's good, it's bad, it's like, it's just the reality. And the reality, and there is this distrust for governmental authority, which explains other things that take place, both in Israel and the United States in the more ultra-Orthodox world. And I think for us to be more uh, cognizant of that, I think, is important. Um, in terms of anti-Semitism, there is still this, you know, my kids, my younger boys went to a uh, a little more yeshivish, uh, ultra-Orthodox school, and they would come home with things about non-Jews here and there. And I'm like, and I realize that some of the teachers are still entertaining these ideas because they're still thinking of non-Jews in this way. It's like pre-war Europe. They're still in the mm-hmm. shtetl. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for us to be aware. Now, I'm wondering what's being done um, because your work with Makom with helping some ultra, is there any work being done in the ultra orthodox community to to try to I don't I don't know if it's educate or enlighten, you know that there is a difference between your classic American non Jew living not, and not that there is no anti semitism there still is anti semitism in America, but it's very different than European. 
I'll tell you the challenge though. There's been this uptick of attacks in New York City in the last few years. And yeah. the group that is getting the most targeted is the ultra-Orthodox or Hasidic male. So the problem is that every time these attacks happen, it only reinforces their feeling of terror, of it's not safe to go outside, of, you know, they're out to get us. Um, you know, with the Jersey City shooting and the Muncie stabbing, you know, just over a year ago. So uh, what I can tell you, we're working on sort of, I, I see our work at Malcolm, like I said, these are the abuse and dysfunction cases of the community. The happy cases don't contact us. We sort of see ourselves as triage um, from the people that got hurt sort of in this world and sort of using Judaism as a weapon. But um, I can't not think of um, prevention because we started, I started Jew in the City sort of uh, to break down stereotypes about Orthodox Jews. When I was confronted with this crowd from Makom, what I realized is that it's not intellectually honest to call it stereotypes. It's actually happening in some cases. Um, it's just that we have to be careful to not assume that this is most Orthodox Jews. These are the worst and, and saddest stories. Um, we changed our mission statement actually from breaking down stereotypes to reversing negative associations. And that way we were able to kind of take both pieces of our work and sort of find the unifying message. Um, and so when I think about prevention, how do we prevent the challenges of the community? When we prevent different types of abuse or different types of, you know, um, closed-minded thinking, that will ultimately alleviate the negative headlines. That will ultimately alleviate people, you know, feeling disenfranchised and wanting to find a place. Um, so we've done some work behind the scenes on trying to stop the problems before they exist. Um, I would actually put attitudes towards, you know, the rest of the world lower on the list because higher on the list uh, in my mind is child safety. There are mm -hmm. issues about, you know, children being safe, free from abuse, having the information they need. Um, I think it's really a question of what schools need to be, you know, need help in terms of making sure that teachers and educators and rabbis are safe. What kind of curriculums are they getting? How do you get into homes that are dysfunctional? How do you spot those kids? So it's on my list of things that I think should be addressed. I don't think walking around with arrogance or walking around, you know, um, with a fear from, you know, many generations ago is the right way to go. Um, but if I consider the issues that exist, child safety is higher up there. So um, it's on the list, but it's not, it's not at the top. Yeah, no, it's, it's like talking about Israel's, you know, image in the world when there are rockets being fired at them. They're not thinking about, their image of thinking about being protected from the, I hear you. And you've got the, the right. I mean, I have to tell you, Alison, I call it a vote to you because um, you're so honest, which is really refreshing. And you're so proud of being a Jew and of Torah. And I think that, that um, I think that is just a winning combination. You're, you're going to be, and you have been successful in my opinion, because you're straight with people and you don't deny when there is problems when there are issues in the Orthodox community, but you're pointing out the fact that they're being highlighted inappropriately and giving the impression to the other 80% of, of American Jews or world Jews that are not Orthodox and that are looking at their tradition and, and saying, you know, maybe I should take a second look. You know, um, the Shabbos thing sounds really good. I, I want my kids to get off their phones a little, uh, you know, I'm stressed out and, 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 and there's just such beautiful, you know, things coming out of the Orthodox community in terms of our family building and in terms of the 
passion and vibrance and support and love for the state people of Israel, you know, for, for, for so much of our people to be turned off to that because of the actions of a few is just a crime. And so I, I really, I applaud you for shining a big spotlight on all of the simple Jews living happy religious lives. Um, and uh, and trying to help those from the Orthodox community that are the subject of abuse, um, and we've had, you know, at MGE we've had the, the the great honor of meeting meeting some of those very very special individuals that you've helped. So I I thank you, and um, uh, I want to give you a bracha that you should continue your your holy work. It really is holy work, and you're doing it magnificently because you're doing it honestly and you're doing it sincerely, and those efforts will always be rewarded by Hashem. And um, we should just continue to, uh, you know, teach Torah and inspire people with, uh, with, with a tradition that really is inspiring, you know. Um, and you should always continue. I know I don't have to tell you this, but the more you continue to share your own personal story, the more real uh, I think uh, this whole thing looks. Because you are a walking specimen, if you will, of someone that didn't have to jump into this community. You 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 inserted yourself, if you will, uh, in, into the Orthodox world, and uh, because you found meaning and purpose in a, in a in a religious life. And my hope and my prayer is that we can inspire more of our Jewish brothers and sisters to find that same meaning and purpose, because people are in such desperation for it. I mean, I don't have to tell you. Is if there's anything else, I don't mean to cut you off. If there's anything else that you wanted to share. Um, about the amazing work you're doing. Uh, maybe we'll just end off with one last question. What's your biggest hope <laughs> for Judaism? Oh, my biggest hope. Um, yeah, I, I really think it's about presenting the right information to people. I think sort of my role in Jewish outreach over time, I sort of saw it changing. Um, I think at the beginning, I was more results oriented and I, I got away from that sort of with maturity and time. And I really believe that um Everybody gets to make their own choice about, you know, the life that they live, but they must, must, must have the accurate information in front of them. Um, and for me, someone that had such a beautiful and positive life but was lacking meaning, to have that meaning inserted into my life through my traditions, through Jewish wisdom, through Jewish rituals, to be able to see other people removing the either negative experiences, negative associations, um, you know, negative information about it and getting to see um, Torah and you know Jewish observance for what it can be, and then deriving that great pleasure and meaning from it. Um, that's like really just the greatest joy in my life. So um, my my greatest hope is that we can remove the misinformation um, and really like reframe Torah and and religious Jews for you know what they can be when things are done right, so that every Jew in the world will have access to you know accurate information and can make choices about their lives, you know, based on knowledge and not um, misinformation or, you know, um, continued like media tropes um, and, and get that chance for themselves. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Big amen from Bill and myself and our entire community. Uh, thank you so much for giving us your time, for participating. And again, you should just continue uh, with passion, with the great drive that you have. And just keep bringing those, you know, wonderful examples of that integration that we talked about before. You know, I grew up, just so you know, like as a very proud, you know, I'm like a poster child for Yeshiva University, modern orthodoxy, blah, blah, blah. You know, because I, 
believe in that kind of integration and I love when it gets highlighted and you do that so well. So, so keep that up and um, call it a vote to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And had luck to you as well. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the wilds cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple podcasts, Google play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wiles. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.